Before we read uh, our text today, which is actually two different passages, uh, short passages, I just want to review some things uh, that we said last week, kind of setting the table for this week's message. This week's message is actually part three of last week's message. It would have been too much to try to cover that all last week. So uh, that that part three, the third point, became uh, its own uh, sermon this week. Uh, we, had, we talked a little bit, and we'll review also uh, the place of the Trinity, the triune God, in our salvation, in our, uh, in the, our sanctification and glorification. Uh, something we learned at family camp this year from our speaker uh, uh, that, uh, who, who spoke to us on, on the topic of the Trinity, and he taught us this, uh, this saying, uh, we, we receive from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, and we give all glory and praise by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Notice the progression from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to us, then from us, glory and praise by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Triune God is, uh, is worshipped in that way and is active in us in that way as well. Well, let's read our two passages. First of all, our main text from 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. Why is it that so many important texts have 3.16 on them? John 3.16, 1 Timothy 3.16. We could add some others. 2 Timothy 3.16. That's also... Anyway, 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And we know that the, the person they're talking about, that Paul is writing about in 1 Timothy 3.16, is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work in the Incarnation. But then we turn to our secondary text, Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. And here the apostle writes this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, on the surface, these two passages don't seem to have uh, a direct relationship with each other, but let's look a little more closely at these two passages. First of all, both actually, both passages are talking about a mystery, a mystery, something that is hidden from our, our understanding. We, we do not see how God works godliness in us, nor do we perhaps see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Both of these passages deal with some sort of mystery, and both of these mysteries have Christ at the center of them. Both of these mysteries. One mystery is the mystery of godliness, which is all about Christ, and the second thing, the second mystery in Colossians 1, 27 through 28, 
That mystery is defined in this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Both mysteries, both focused on Jesus Christ, and both geared toward or leading us toward godliness, perfection, not in this life, but to be achieved fully in the life to come, both leading us in that direction, the mystery of godliness. And today we're going to deal with how do these things about Christ that Paul lists in this mystery of godliness, how do they in fact help us in our path of godliness? The, the other passage, Colossians 1, 27 through 28, uh, talks about the proclamation of Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There too, using different words, but actually talking about the same thing. Our maturing in Christ, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery that leads to godliness and the mystery that ultimately leads through Christ to being presented uh, mature in Christ. So how is our godliness, how is our godliness connected to all this? Well, let's look at the Colossians passage first. Paul defines this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ's Spirit dwells in us. Remember, again, this Trinitarian formula, from the Father, from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, by the Son, uh, with the Holy Spirit, and so forth. The Father ordains. The Son accomplishes the Father's will. The Spirit applies the work of the Son and testifies, and nourishes, and abides. Christ dwells in us, Christ in you. Christ dwells in us by his Spirit, according to the will of the Father. In John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and beginning in that last week before his crucifixion, beginning to prepare them for what is to come, both in his death and his resurrection, but also to the time when he is no longer on earth with them, he says this, John 14, beginning of verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does Christ dwell in us? By his Spirit. He has sent the Spirit to be with us and to be in us. A a verse down, a few verses down, Jesus says something similar. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In that day that when the Holy Spirit is given, that other comforter who will come, You will know that I am in the Father, that you are in me, and I in you. A few verses further, John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Father, the Son, the Spirit in you. Notice those prepositions, those different prepositions. I can say, Christ is with me, but that would be kind of saying, he's another person standing alongside of me. He's with me. Christ is for me. Yes, that's true. But he doesn't have to be here to be for me. Christ in me. Different preposition. And that means the fulfillment of that great covenant promise. You will be my people. I will be your God. How does that come to pass? How does that, how does, is that all brought to pass? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this Christ who is in you by his Spirit and the Father with him, with the Spirit in you all working the Father's good pleasure and will. The Spirit of Christ is in us. The Spirit testifies to the glory that is to come and applies the work of Christ to us. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 22, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The spirit is in our hearts. The spirit has put his seal on us. That seal testifies that we are God's children. And if children, if sons, if daughters, then heirs, heirs with Christ, The Spirit is that earnest, that down payment that testifies to what is to come, the glory that is to come. So let's understand how this works. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to dwell in us. As Christ has ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, So we have Father and Son, but Holy Spirit now, the other comforter that has come to us. But of course, you can't separate the Trinity, can you? You can't divide it. And so Father and Son are also with the Spirit in us. This is why Christians are taught that even your body is a temple where God dwells. And there are certain things that flow from that in how we live, how we take care of the body that is the temple of God. Now let's go to our other text, which is Christ, the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness tells us, of course, that it it is all about Christ and, and this mystery, this way in which God works by his Spirit that dwells in us and by Christ, whose Spirit this is, and by the Father who dwells in us with Christ and the Spirit, the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
how does this actually work? And Paul says the mystery of godliness is this. The mystery of godliness is this. He, that is Christ, was manifested in the flesh. That refers to the incarnation. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the, under the law to redeem those who were under the law. The incarnation. Then he writes this, vindicated by the Spirit. And as we'll see, that refers to the resurrection. Seen by angels. At key points in Christ's life, he was ministered to by angels. The Bible says that the angels are ministering spirits who have been sent, sent to help us and watch over us. The same angels that witnessed the key elements or the key or that were with Christ and watching over him are also watching over us. Proclaimed among the nations, the preaching of the gospel, Bele uh, believed on in the world. The Great Commission goes out, uh, tells us to go out into the world, to proclaim him among the nations, but also the Holy Spirit is the one who causes faith in us and arises, rises within our hearts the gifts of repentance and faith, and finally, taken up in glory, the ascension of Christ, the glorification of Christ. And what is he doing now, taken up in glory, the continuing intercession of Christ? All of this, all of this about Christ is to have a formative influence in us as the Holy Spirit applies it to us for our godliness. Well, let's break these down a little bit more. The incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, becomes one of us. Think about that. Several years ago, there was a song that came out, What If God Was One of Us? I don't know if you remember that song. I might even be dating myself anymore by, by mentioning that. It's not a particularly religious song. In fact, in some ways, it's kind of mocking. What if God was one of us? What if he was just a, a person on a bus, a slob like one of us trying to get through a day? See, it's not very respectful. But when I heard that song the first time, I thought to myself, but yes, he actually became one of us. He actually became one of us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. A, a fairly long passage to read here, but please follow along. The writer of Hebrews is telling us how Christ is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better. The priestly ministry of Christ is better. Do not go back to the old ways. Christ is better. He writes this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, by the way, that he is specifically referring to the Father, he in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's the Son. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The Son who sanctifies, the Son is the, uh, and we who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's the Son of God in his incarnation as our great high priest is not ashamed to call us brothers. It was fitting, the writer of Hebrews says, it was fitting, it was the right thing to do. It was according to the right principles of God's plan that in order to bring many sons to glory, the author of their salvation had to be made like one of them and suffer to be... Can you imagine the Son of God had to be perfected? What that means is he had to experience life as one of us in order to be our high priest, in order to lead us to glory. He had to become one of us and suffer as one of us, dealing with all the issues of living in a fallen, cursed world. And yet, this Christ, this Son of God, was without sin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That is the Son in his incarnation speaking. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Christ reveals the Father to us. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In a way, Jesus is leading the worship of his Father, singing praise and in among us, in us. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children God has given me. That that last statement, again, a statement by the Son. Behold, I and the children God has given me. It is as if we are to appear before the Father with Christ, and we have been given to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said, and I will lose none of them. But as we, pursue, uh, as we pursue grace, as we pursue godliness, at the end of that road, we are presented before God with Christ as our brother. And he says, here am I, as he speaks to the Father, here am I and the children God has given me. I think that's a, that's a reference to the, to the time we appear with Christ and he presents his church spotless, without blemish, before the Father. Here am I, and the children God, you, Father, have given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ, in his death 
and his resurrection has defeated Satan. And he has defeated the great enemy, death. He has set us free from our bondage to sin and slavery to death. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, grave, is your sting? It was buried with Christ. He had to be make, made like us in order to be our faithful high priest. But Paul goes on. He talks about vindicated by the Spirit. We looked last week at a, a passage from the first chapter of Romans where Paul, talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, says that Christ was declared to be the son of David according to the flesh, but he was vindicated or declared to be the Son of God by the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. His declaration of to be the Son of God by the Spirit is this, this vindication. He was vindicated by the Spirit. His resurrection is the testimony of the Father through the Spirit that this indeed is my Son. This is my Son. Actually, Paul, in another place, quotes from Psalm 2 and refers it to the resurrection, where God says, this is my son, this day I have begotten you. And Paul refers that to the resurrection. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul writes 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 draws the parallel between us and Christ, or Adam and Christ. In one Adam, die, we all died. In Christ, we are made alive. His vindication in the resurrection is the first fruit the early harvest that testifies to what is to come. It also testifies not only our physical resurrection, but also our spiritual new life. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, 9 through 13. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, in Christ's death, we died to sin. In Christ's resurrection, not only is he the first fruits of those who believe, the early harvest that testifies to our own physical resurrection, but in his resurrection and our identity in Christ, he in us and we in him, we are also spiritually raised to live a new life. His resurrection directly affects my pursuit of godliness.
an angelic ministry. The, the, he was witnessed by, by angels. I said, again, angels were present at key events in the life of Christ. Think of his, think of his birth, who was singing praise to God. Angels. Think of his temptation, who was ministering to him after 40 days in the wilderness. Angels came to minister him to him. Who was there at the tomb on the day of his resurrection? Angels were there, testifying of the risen Christ to those who came to the tomb. Uh, the tomb. Where were angels on the day of ascension? They came and said, This same Jesus whom you have seen go up into heaven will in the same way return. Angels, the same angels that witness the life of Christ and aided him, the Bible says they are ministering spirits. They worship God. They help us. We do not see them, but they are there. They announce God's great work. Psalm 91, 11 through 12 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. On their hands they will bear you up. Again, we are not particularly conscious of the ministry of angels. But we know they exist, and we know that they come at key times in God's work. And we know that they are there as serving or ministering spirits to do God's will and have a special care and charge over his children. Just as with Christ, so these ministering spirits are with us. Paul goes on. He says he was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Proclaimed and believed. The proclamation of the gospel flows from, also from the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension. Before he ascended, he gave his disciples the great commission. Go into the world and preach, proclaim the gospel. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 10. He asks a series of rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that's asked, and it's not necessarily for you to shout out the answer, but you're in your mind, you will immediately think of the answer to a rhetorical question. It's a, a method of getting you to think. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions in Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on, in, on him in whom they have not believed? Well, well, what's the answer? No, don't shout it out. The answer is, well, they can't. They can't. How are they to believe in him of whom in him of whom they have never heard. Again, well, they can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, they won't. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? They won't. 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul is saying there is, in, the gospel is not far away, it's near you, it's right in your mouth, it's in your heart. Someone brought this gospel to you, someone who was sent, and that sender was Christ, and then the ones who were sent were the apostles. But through them, the whole church continues to obey that great commission. We are sent, therefore we preach, therefore you believe, therefore you, you have heard of him, and therefore you believe, and you call on Christ. He is proclaimed among the nations. The ongoing ministry of proclaiming Christ is the great ministry of the church in its worship and its work, in its fellowship, everything. We declare the work, we declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. What about his ascension? By the way, as as the church goes forward with the proclamation of Christ, the teachings about Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work enabling faith, enabling and giving the gifts of faith in, the, in what our catechism calls the effectual calling. The outward calling is the work of the church. The effectual calling, the calling that comes in our hearts, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the result of that, the outward call of the church as it goes and proclaims the good news of Christ, and the inner calling of the Holy Spirit working in us faith and putting new hearts in us, the result of that is that he is believed on in the world. The ascension, his continuing priestly ministry. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is to be uh, his, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, that whole passage from uh, the book of Hebrews about the high priestly ministry of Christ, he is interceding for us. A continuing ministry, unlike the Levitical priest, he does not die. Unlike the Levitical priest, he is, his ministry is not confined to earth or to an earthly temple or tabernacle, but rather his ministry is at the right hand of the Father where he is, is given all authority in heaven and on earth, but is also said to wait here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, but he is continually interceding for us. The goal, then, of all these things, as we consider all of these aspects of the incarnational ministry of Christ, the goal of this is godliness. And each element has something to do, something to, some role to play in our growth in godliness. Our goal is maturity. Remember, the mystery of Colossians 1 uh, 27 and 28 ends, Him we, we proclaim, worship, uh, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
godly, mature. That maturity in Romans 8 is defined as being conformed to the image of the Son. We are to be presented by the Son to the Father as his bride. The Apostle Jude closes his short letter with these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you without blemish, blameless, faultless, blameless, fully conformed to the image of the Son, so that he says, Here I am, I and the children that God has given me, as he presents his church, his bride, to the Father. The finished work of Christ the inner work of the Holy Spirit, the decree of the Father, guarantees all is of this. We worship God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We cannot divide them. They are, di they are distinct persons, but united fully in the Godhead. They are perfectly united in purpose, in power, in glory, in essence, and yet distinctive in their work. Not with different agendas, but distinctive aspects of the work that God has ordained. The end result, we stand before God, Christ, and the children of you have given him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the mystery of godliness, as Paul says, we confess that this mystery is great. We confess that the mystery itself is a confession of our faith in Christ and our understanding of how Christ leads us to glory, that he in us is the hope of glory. We pray, Father, that these things that we have said today, these truths that we have brought from many, many different passages of Scripture, we pray, Lord, that you would keep these in our minds and hearts, that we would meditate on them, and that we would use these things and think of Christ, who was incarnate, raised from the dead, witnessed by angels, proclaimed on in uh, among the nations, believed on in the world, and, and ascended to glory. We pray, Father, that each of these aspects of our Savior's life and work 
would become more meaningful and precious to us. In Jesus' name, amen.